Acts 17. If you'll turn to it. And I want to thank all of you who uh, prayed for our trip to Ukraine. And uh, the many of you who've already asked about it, let me just give you uh, our kind of 15-second report. God is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. Uh, The trip itself with many, many legs and uh, lots of hours uh, on planes and lots of exchanges uh, uh, really went smoothly. Uh, While on the trip, we basically stayed well, but it was uh, uh, a wonderful time with our our friends and our sister church in Belgrade, and we uh, had a a great music and arts camp. A number of children came, a number made professions of faith, and so let's pray for follow-up there as well. So thank you for praying, and now shift those prayers Uh, on to others who are on the field even as we speak. You've heard the statement, uh, what I I don't know won't hurt me. You believe that? (laughs) Most of you are shaking your heads. Some of you might believe that. Maybe some of you have even said that. Uh, Young mother was telling the story of her little boy, age four. He came screaming out of the bathroom to tell her that he had dropped his toothbrush in the potty. She went in, fished it out, and of course threw it away. And then he went running back into her bathroom and came out a few minutes later with her toothbrush and said, well, maybe we should throw this one away too because it fell in several days ago. (laughs) What you don't know may hurt you. And this passage before us tells us that as well. There are those that just, they don't know. But their eternity is absolutely at stake. What we are going to see here is Paul's approach to these, uh, these folks in Athens. And we have looked at his approach uh, in the various uh, cities, and, and we're going to continue to do that. And we know that this was a very unique time. It was the, the beginning of the, the church as we know it. The church actually be, began, I am convinced, back in Genesis with the first ones who were believers. But this is more the church as we know it. And we're looking at the empowered church as we look here in the book of Acts, and we are seeing how they function, and especially, more importantly, how God functioned through them. How did He grow His church? What did He do in order to grow His church? Because one thing we know, and that is it's the same Holy Spirit that is working and moving among us today 
as was working and moving among the people in Athens in that day. We're going to read this uh, uh, portion of Scripture by sections, but we are in Acts 17. Beginning with verse 16, I want you to notice how he captured the attention of the people there, and he did it, he did it through dialogue. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his, uh, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Let's pray together. Lord, will you, in these moments, be our teacher? We have sung of your faithfulness of old. We have spoken of your faithfulness to us. And here we see your faithfulness through the Apostle Paul. Will you show us what all of that means to us, not just as a history lesson, but to us in our lives. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, notice how Paul begins this, this contact. Uh, remember, as Adam shared with you last week, some of the previous cities and others even before that, you had Thessalonica, you had Berea, and in other cities... His point of contact was the synagogue. Come into a town, go to the synagogue. Made sense. Those were people with a, I guess you could say, a godly bent. They had some kind of an interest, even if they didn't really get it, even if they didn't know about Christ yet. And so that's often where he would start. And he would talk about uh, things in the Old Testament that they were familiar with and show how Christ was fulfilling that or had fulfilled it in, in his life. How this is not something new, but this is the gospel. And so here he does the same thing in Athens, but it also says that he went into the marketplace, the marketplace every day, verse 17, with those who happened to be there. And then it talks about two groups of people, 
verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what's this babbler wish to say? Others said, seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, it's important we, we get a grasp on who he was talking to because here's the thing. These people are still around. Now, we don't call them that. I don't think I've ever met anyone that said, I'm an Epicurean or I'm a Stoic. And yet, hear what they believe. The Epicurean thought everything just happened by chance. They didn't believe in life after death. Their gods, and by the way, many of them were atheists, but if they believed in gods, they were distant, they were remote. They were from a distance. The chief end of man. You know, if they had a catechism, if you had an Epicurean catechism, what is the chief end of man? They would say, the chief end of man is my own pleasure. Does that begin to sound familiar? Think there's any Epicureans around today? You probably know dozens of them. And some of you may be saying, well, I like that. What's so bad about that? Why should I not seek my own pleasure? They did anything they could to avoid the pain. Above all, they took no responsibility of anything that might prove difficult. Enjoy yourself because this life is all there is. Remember the old advertisement? You only go around once in life, so grab all, what is it, grab all the? I'm shocked that you know beer commercials. (laughs) But that's it. That's that's the, the philosophy. Grab all the gusto. You only go around once in life. And then you had the Stoics. They would uh, say gods are everywhere and in everything. But even though their, their gods were represented everywhere, their gods didn't really care. They were impersonal. So there's lots of gods around, but no talk of any kind of uh, personal relationship. That just wasn't part of what they uh, would believe. Life had a fatalistic ending. They believed in individual independence. No sense of divine presence or guidance in their lives. When bad things happen, you just you buck up. You get tough. Those of you in sports have heard this. When the going gets tough, the tough get, get going. We know that one. And so the the Stoic would say, basically, there is pain in this life, but I am strong enough and I will get through this pain no matter what. And there are many of those around. 
even those who profess Christ. When people are facing difficult times, and I've had innumerable people say to me, I am strong. I will get through this. Now, if they're an unbeliever, I just wait because they realize at some point they realize I'm not as strong as I thought I was. But when a believer says that to me, I am strong, I can get through this, if I'm their pastor, I say, you know what? Christ is strong. That's what you need. Because you're going to come to the end of your own strength at some point. Don't be stoic about it. Christ is strong. That's where your strength has to be. Remember Jesse Ventura? Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Boy, was he wrong. Christianity isn't a crutch. It's life support. (laughs) It's that necessary. It's not just a, a crutch to help us through because we limp. But Christ in us is our only hope in getting through this life. In Ukraine, one afternoon we met with some students uh, it was uh, part of it was an English class that Luda, the pastor's wife, teaches, and part of it were students that were at the camp that were older, high school students, and so on. And uh, we went around, and the first thing she said, "Let's introduce ourselves." They just wanted to speak English, and so most people would say, "Well, I am so and so, and I'm." Uh, married or I'm single and uh, I have this many children. This is what I do for a living and so on. Then we got to one man, Ivan. Some of you know him. You've come in contact with him. Ivan said this, and and it's basically verbatim. He said, my name's Ivan. I'm a skeptic and an atheist. It was the first thing out of his mouth. That was his identity. Now, why was he there? Well, similar to what went on with Paul. It was, it was just a curiosity. He wanted to, he wanted to talk with Americans. That's, that's all it was. He was drawn in by dialogue with Americans. And amazingly, two days earlier, he had come to church because I was preaching. Now, I'd like to say it was because he heard I was a great preacher and there was an American, you know. That wasn't why he came. He came because he knew an American was going to be preaching. Whenever an American comes, he wants to come out of curiosity. He likes hearing English and, and talking. Surprise, he heard the gospel and that's, in a sense, what, what we see here. We see 
them hearing the gospel, it was just out of curiosity. And that can be a bridge into the gospel. In terms of creating curiosity, probably the best uh, one I've ever been around was a man named Billy Hanks. And I, I took a little bit of training under him. And he would do this. He was big on what he called sharing a word of truth. And he would uh, do things like this. He would get on an elevator and, and uh, you know, they'd say, up or down. And he would say, well, up eventually, but down for now. And then, you know, they'd look at him and, you know, wonder about it. And he would take the next 15 seconds or 10 seconds or whatever it was and explain because of that curiosity. And he'd say, you know, eventually, I, I want to go to heaven eventually. For now, take me to floor number one or the ground floor. Now, that takes practice to be able to uh, do that kind of a thing. I dare you the next time you get on an elevator. You know, just face everybody because they're all facing up there. Just turn around and face everybody and, and try that. Yeah, we're... We're going down now, but I hope we all go up eventually. Look what else Paul did. He acknowledged what good he could in these people, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this place was the center point for ideas. But look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Basically, they were always looking for something new. They were talking about ideas, but it wasn't impacting their life. That's what he was dealing with here. So, Paul makes an honest assessment. He's not just baiting them. You know, he, he calls them very religious. Now, I can imagine them proudly, you know, holding their suspenders and saying, yes, we, do you wear suspenders with togas? I don't know. But, you know, saying, yes, we are very religious. Well, that wasn't necessarily a compliment from him, was it? But he was acknowledging it would be uh, like, for instance, you seeing Mormon missionaries in your neighborhood and, and saying something like, I see you're very zealous. Or Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, I, I appreciate your zeal. That what you believe, you would actually go door to door. See, that's something honestly that you can say, but it's not giving in and saying what you're saying is right or, or anything else. And, and that's basically what he did here. As he walked around the city, he would have seen one idol after another. They, they say there was maybe 25 or 30,000 public statues, and then in the Parthenon, maybe another 30,000 statues there. And he was able to Say, you're a city full of spiritually religious people. You're, you're hungry. 
Now, what's our attitude toward such people? You know, too often we can, we as, as Christians, because we really believe that we know the one and only way, but that can come off to some as being arrogant. What is our attitude toward those who just don't know? We're going to talk about that more in the application in a minute. But look what else Paul, verse 23. He understood their religious views. For as I passed along and uh, uh, verse 23, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He, to at least that degree, understood their religious views. He must have taken time carefully. If there was 30,000 idols for him to find the one that says, to an unknown God, he, for them, took the familiar, they probably would have seen that or at least known it was there, took the familiar and introduced them to the unfamiliar. That's what he was doing in, in sharing Christ. And that's what Jesus did all the time. And then we see also that he understood their culture. Verse 28 again. This is uh, it's closely related to the previous point. He wasn't intimidated by their culture. Um, it says in him, verse 28, we, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is from a poem written by Eratus, who lived in the 3rd century B.C. It was written about the god Zeus. And he took it and applied it to Christ. He understood their culture at least to that degree. And he understood that there is a measure of light in every culture no matter what. Now, some cultures have, have virtually suppressed anything about God, but there's still a measure of light there, and he understood that. You know, we in Ukraine did a music and arts camp, and one of the reasons uh, we take the music and arts camp to Ukraine is because as a culture... They have got such a high view of music and the arts. And not just the highbrow people, so to speak. We went to a, a, a Russian ballet in, in the great opera house there in Odessa. This was after our mission was over. We were on our way out and had an evening there. And I've been to an opera there. You know what amazed me when I went to an opera there? And by the way, that's outside my comfort zone, opera, opera is, but but I, I could at least appreciate. But here's what I noticed when we went to the opera. You saw young, like, teenage couples coming on dates to the opera. You saw older people that looked like they didn't have much money, and it's pretty cheap to go to the opera or the ballet in this world-class opera house. We saw a bunch of sailors. Can you imagine sailors in our country you know, in port, saying, 
hey guys, let's go to the opera tonight. And yet there they were in uniform. They've got a, a high view of music and the arts, and that's why, that's why it's attractive to take that, and it's appropriate for us to, to take that to them. And it's, it's not a bait and switch. We taught them music and the arts, but we taught it from a, a Christian worldview perspective and uh, with the gospel integrated. At that same English class I was telling you about earlier, uh, Luda, who was leading it, said, uh, okay, let's talk. She would throw out topics. She'd say, let's talk about movies. And one of the men said, and he was looking at me, he said, have you ever seen a Russian movie? Now, for the life of me, all I could think of was Rocky IV, where he, you know, he was, you know, Drago, this big Soviet bad guy, and I'm thinking, I can't say that. And then I said, uh, uh, Dr. Zhivago. And he said, oh, yes, a sad story. You know, that meant something to him. Because that was a part of their culture. And then we see what Paul did with all this. He didn't just stop there with relating to their culture and using their poems and all that. He did not for a moment compromise the message. Uh, beginning with verse 23, and we're going to go through this quickly because this, this is the gospel message basically that we see in every sermon that they preach. Verse 23, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. And then he begins with the doctrine of the Creator. And that was a uniquely Hebrew doctrine. You know, something that some of them wouldn't even have known about. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And then he teaches the doctrine of, of God's providence, the God who is in control of nations and individuals, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he teaches about the God who desires fellowship with his creation, and, of course, that's going to be an absolute contrast for the Epicureans or the Stoics in saying this is a personal God, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. And then... He talks about how man is made in God's image. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring. And then he gives the application. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. He's saying, look, it's not like these idols. He's different than anything you see here. And then he teaches that God has been patient but now requires a right response of repentance. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then finally, 
the most divisive doctrine. You know, if he was soft-pedaling the gospel, he would not do it. He would not share this. He talks about the resurrection. But without that, the gospel hasn't been preached. Verse 31. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now look at the response to that. We see that he wasn't soft-pedaling the gospel. And we see that by the response. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. The gospel message always demands a response. And we need, we need to understand that. If there's no sense of a need for a response, then the gospel hasn't gone out. Maybe a portion of it. But it demands a response. I want to talk to you about two responses. One is in your life. I doubt that there's anyone here that when I talked about Athens and all the idols there, I doubt that there's anyone that said, you know, my life's full of idols too, just like the Athenians. But let me ask you this. What if Paul walked around in your life? What what would he see there? Would he maybe see something or many things that are more important to you than your relationship with Christ? Because if he would, that's an idol. What would he see? What would Christ see if he walked around in your life? Or maybe would Paul say, I see you're very religious in the same way he said it to the Athenians. You know, you do all the outward things. But what about that personal relationship? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Make today the day of your repentance. I would love to talk to any of you more about that very issue. That's the key issue right there. And then there's another application that I talked about earlier. I said we'd get back to it. And that is the greatest need of those around us. What is our attitude toward the lost around us. I came under real conviction about that. I want to tell you exactly when it was and the circumstance. It's kind of a strange place to be convicted about that. I was mowing my lawn. Last summer, we had a neighbor who has a very large dog that he lets, uh, at, at that point at least, he let run free very early in the morning, very late at night. Now, 
what that meant was that that dog would come into our front yard, and let me just say he'd leave a mess. I can't believe I've started and I'm ending a sermon with bathroom uh, stories. He would leave a mess in the yard, and so when I would mow, if I didn't watch where I was going, I would step in the mess, and it would bother me because then I would have to clean my shoes off, and you get the picture. You've, the, you know, you've all been there with that, and I, I just kept getting a, a worse attitude. You know, every time I'd go out there, and I'd see the mess, and I'd be thinking, well, he's not a very good neighbor. Um, he's not keeping our neighborhood covenant. That's not very considerate. And so, you know, you get the idea and just having a, a bad attitude. And then one day I was out there with a bad attitude, thinking bad thoughts about my neighbor, and I thought of the book of Jonah. Now, okay. I know, that's not typical, right? That's why I know it must have been from God. Here's what I thought from the book of Jonah. It wasn't about the whole book, but let me, let me tell you, I'll give you the bottom line of it in a minute, but let me, let me tell you why that came to my mind. Uh, Jonah, if you remember, he had a problem with the people of Nineveh. He tried to run away. He didn't want to tell them good news. He didn't want to share with them. He was irritated with them. He wanted God to judge them and, and so on. He had a bad attitude about them. And then at, at the end of the book, God teaches him a lesson about compassion. Jonah's stewing about all this. <coughs> God causes a plant to grow up over him and in, in the great heat, and he's sitting there in the shade, and he's enjoying it. And then God sends a worm to kill the plant, and then he's out. Uh, it wilts, and he's out there in the sun, and he's suffering and so on, and he's very upset about, about this. I know it, it sounds like a strange story. And then this is what God said. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah, said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, something that's here and gone. You're all bent out of shape over that. And should I, God speaking, not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Here's what kept going through my mind. You're worried about stepping in a mess when so far as you know spiritually, your neighbor doesn't know his right hand from his left. And all you can worry about is a mess on your shoes? That's all I could think about as I was doing my front lawn. And so I decided, okay, Lord. And so from then on, when I would see the mess, I would use it to pray for my neighbors. 
That's strange, isn't it? No reflection, just a reminder. And then God spared me. One of my other neighbors complained, and it all got taken care of. (laughs) But it was an eye-opener for me. What, What things are really important? When we have the lost around us, those that don't know their right hand from their left spiritually, and we're, we're thinking bad thoughts because of their lifestyle, what else do they know? They don't know their right from their left. Or we're thinking bad thoughts because they may not be good people or they're good people and they, they don't go to church. May God help us. Help us to see the lost as Paul did. Help us to see the lost as Christ does and to risk ourselves for their sake. Let's bow together.